and there aren't easy fights. Yeah, just keep your party at level one and play fifth edition forever. <laughs> okay, that sounds miserable. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone's a ranger. Yeah. Good luck. Live for the Mundangerous Windswept Plains in New York City, I'm your host Shane. And I'm your host Ishan. And welcome to episode 279 of Total Party Thrill, a podcast for game masters and players where we discuss our campaigns in order to inspire yours. In this episode, we're talking about playing and running sword and sorcery adventures. But first, the party plays a game for blood in the Gates of Morning campaign. And later, Red Sonia is a one-woman army in the Character Creation Forge. Total Party Thrill is brought to you this week by Hero Forge. Hero Forge offers fully customizable tabletop miniatures with dozens of fantasy races and thousands of parts to choose from. You can get your favorite custom miniatures in a variety of materials, including plastic or metal, Ishan. I like metal. You know, it feels uh, it feels more real, even though it is by definition not real. What could be more real than using their easy-to-use design tool and building the perfect miniature online using fully 3D in-depth character creator right from your web browser? Look, in Q4, they've added freaking bear folk. Uh, there's like dragon heads and wings and horns and tails. And I, of course, I'm going to put them on bear folk. Uh, they've got furry body types, plant-grade and digit-grade legs, and a new piercing system. They've also added epic weapons. I don't know what that means, but it sounds epic. <laughs> I guess you have to go to Hero Forge to find out. All right, Ishan, where are we in the Gates of Morning campaign? The Gates of Morning campaign is our fifth edition D&D game set in Eberron, a sequel of sorts to the original Morning Glory campaign. And in Korth, the austere capital city of Karnath, the party is chasing a killer. So deep beneath the city, the party has discovered a clan of goblinoids calling themselves the Kesh Sharat. After freeing their leader Zertold from Elaine's mind control, they're trying to negotiate passage to find whatever it was the Mindseed was hiding down here. Yeah, but Zertold says her clan has lost valuable training time doing Elaine's bidding, and if the party wants to pass, they must prove themselves worthy to the goblins. She's lost time, and it's your fault, obviously. Yeah, that that's how it works. <laughs> you, you must be involved in this somehow. Right. They seem like capable warriors, so she proposes a fight to first blood. Uh, Of course, the party accepts and is escorted to a two-tiered arena in a nearby cavern. So the way that the battle works, the goblins explain, all combatants begin on the top tier of the arena. When injured for the first time, they drop down to the tier below and then wait for the others to arrive. If they are injured on the lower tier, they are removed from play, and the last team with players on the board is declared the victor. So the party accepts and takes positions opposite two goblins, two bugbears, and a hobgoblin. Each uh, is clad in fine weapons and armor. Members of the clan, including the cubs, line up all around the arena to spectate. So to start it off, Switch nicks a bugbear with a quick slash and he drops below. The other bugbear stabs her from behind and then she falls to the tier below where she's face to face with the bugbear she just uh, stabbed. The hobgoblin then begins chanting. Bramble tries to dodge out of the way, but is taken out by the hobgoblin's longsword. But when Nan, but when Zan nicks the hobgoblin with his glaive, it sends him to the secondary arena, and Bramble is there waiting, 
taking out both the Hobgoblin and the Bugbear with a well-placed Thunder Wave. This leaves the lower tier completely dominated by the party. Warden then drops an Ice Storm over most of the arena, hitting the Bugbear, but the goblins all dodge preternaturally, and Lenore is unfortunately caught in the blast. Yeah, I think that was a calculated risk. Oh, Lenore is a high-level rogue and will dodge it no problem, and then the goblin succeeded and Lenore failed on that roll. Yeah, oops. When the goblins slash at Warden, that puts the entire party on the lower tier, and then the remaining goblins join them. But, ready for this, the party has prepared strikes for the newcomers. A goblin's nimble footwork is able to maneuver switch into friendly fire, and she is knocked out of the arena, but all of the remaining goblins fall to the rest of the blows. Suddenly realizing that they have bled on the arena, the party refuses the goblins' offer of first aid and do the best they can to clean up their own blood. Zertold congratulates them and then warns them that the path ahead is blocked by noxious fumes and they should not carry an open flame lest they ignite them. And we'll find out what happens next, next week. So this week, we are continuing our series on different genres, I guess. We loosely use the term to describe these episodes, and we're talking about sword and sorcery adventures. These include some of the original tales of adventure um, that serve as inspiration for RPGs in the first place. Think like uh, Robert E. Howard's Conan, Fritz Lieber's Fafford and the Grey Mouser, Michael Barcock's Elric stories. These are stories of a singular hero or a small group that wander the world performing deeds of renown, helping villagers, fighting monsters, getting into trouble with sorcerers, finding loot, spending it all on booze and uh, the other um, pleasures. (laughs) There's some gambling. (laughs) There's there's a little bit of love in there, I guess. Sometimes there's money involved. There's there's maybe lust at best. Yeah, right. <laughs> you can't have episodic stories that come out every month if someone gets into a long-term relationship. Right. So these are often associated with low magic, low fantasy, maybe a primitive world, but they don't necessarily need to be. Uh, there is, however, a grittiness and a realism that grounds the stories. You know, something like having a comfortable bed or even just a full stomach are often impermanent luxuries in these kinds of stories. Yeah, that's the kind of thing you start with but quickly lose or fight in order to get at the end, but will be gone by the time the next adventure starts. Right. What what did you gain from this? Oh, we got a nice meal. Right. They're also character-driven stories. They focus on powerful heroes who are capable of achieving great deeds, but these are also characters who can be very flawed. They're, they're very human, and ultimately, even though they are able to do things that a reader or a player isn't able to do in the real world, they should be very relatable. So let's talk about the themes of sword and sorcery adventures. The first one would be, I think, that character comes first in these stories. So Sword and Sorcery grew out of pulp adventure stories, um, kind of a a cousin genre. They were published one at a time in really cheap magazines, and a writer couldn't guarantee that a reader was going to be familiar with the overarching plot that they were trying to develop, so they just kind of didn't develop an overarching plot. Characters are the focus of the story. Yeah, it actually makes some of it hard to read now, because there is no through line. (laughs) (laughs) 
what order did these come in? Ah, it doesn't matter. It literally doesn't matter. Yeah, exactly. That was a that was a hard part of me trying to go back to read Conan. Was just like, but wait, is this before or after? And the answer is, oh, right. <laughs> um, I, I remember there was a, a Philip Jose Farmer tried to put the Doc Savage stories, which are you know more pulp than sword and sorcery, uh, into like a a cogent order, like with actual dates from like the 1930s, and it's all fudging. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's like, you know, Conan topples an entire empire in one story, but then turns around and like gets caught up in some jungle vines. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, really? (laughs) That was that was the subject of this one. Uh, They're, you know, weeks apart. And then why didn't he use the jungle vines in the next story to win? Right. There's Chekhov's nothing. Exactly. So what matters here, though, is their personalities, right? Their their motivations and the relationships to um, each other and the world within their adventures. So they're often like, you know, paired up with a with a one off character or maybe some recurring close friends or, you know, a, a team or organization that, that can be reliably carried through stories. Oh, you mean like a party that happens to find themselves together every once in a while to go on an adventure together? Something like that, yes. Huh, interesting. A side sneak, if you will. (laughs) So in these stories, they might end up saving the world, but more often they're on a personal quest or they're just trying to make ends meet, right? They're trying to make a buck so they can eat or they're bored and curious and they want to find adventure. Yeah. Or, you know, they stumble into something and then it's just about surviving it and getting out. Right. Why were you here in the world? Eh, Does it matter? You were here and now there's adventure. (laughs) Right. Why were you trying to break into the sorceress's tower and then got trapped in the dungeon? Well, here's the thing. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Why wouldn't I be? Right. So it's important to know who these characters are, uh, what kind of action that they would take in a given situation. What is it that resonates with them? Is it, you know, lust? Is it lust for power? Is it is it money? Is it adventure? Um, do they have a strong moral compass and like they're out here righting wrongs? This doesn't mean that they can't have an arc, but if you bring a character to a game in a sword and sorcery game, like they probably should already have a defined personality and a worldview that you can use as a touchstone. So the tension in these stories isn't usually going to be about like why the character acts because that's already going to be understood from the backstories and the interpersonal like conversations and relationships that you have. It's going to be more about how the characters act, right? Like, okay, the Serpent King is going to tempt Conan at the end, like the climax of the story by saying like, come to my side and I will, you will rule with me. But everybody knows Conan's not going to accept that. Like that's not who Conan is. And it would be weird if you said yes. Right. So the question then becomes like, how does he get out of this? How does he defeat the army when he's surrounded? Uh, How does he escape the uh, inescapable prison, right? Like what confluence of events and and clever strategies allows our hero to uh, achieve the unachievable. Yeah, it reminds me a little bit of like uh, some of the more recent Vader stories, Darth Vader stories, where like it's in the interim uh, before the original uh, movies, and you're like, you know, he's not going to turn to the the light side of the force, right? He's not going to be a good guy, right? You're just sort of like reading the story to find out, like I don't know, how does Vader get out of this scrape? Those those Vader comics are so good for that. Like, 
like so good for that characterization of just like you know he's bad like you know there's no redemption coming for him you you know you ultimately side with like the antagonists of his story but oh every week <laughs> like every <laughs> issue is just like yeah more vader just just more vader and it's because like that characterization is so good right like like the way that you characterize uh, uh vader is really compelling as you know being manipulated by the emperor trying to manage his own schemes um but also like extremely powerful and very capable and also very wanted like hunted by rebels you know yeah it's a good touchstone because you know where the character started and you know where the character is going to end and there's not a lot of distance there so you know that not much can change for the character but you can still have a lot of interesting cool adventures yeah like uh, I, I mean to call one out like the vader down series for that like have you seen that one ishan uh the the like he crash lands and is is literally like captured by rebels is that one uh fear and dead men yeah it's the the <laughs> famous panel is like we have you surrounded stand down vader and he says i'm surrounded by nothing but fear and dead men and then just kills everybody with the force <laughs> and you get you get to see how it happens right and at a table you get to like let's see how that plays out i don't know how are you gonna get out of this yeah it's it's so choice <laughs> <laughs> So that sort of leads to the next theme for Sword and Sorcery is individual power. It, it matters, right? The heroes are capable of great deeds. They might be the greatest swordsman in the world, like the Grey Mouser literally is. Like it says in, in the books, he's the greatest swordsman in the world. Uh, or maybe they're the only one who can control a, a powerful magic item like Elric. They border on super heroic, uh, which means they must constantly be tested for those titles, right? They can uh, They can perform impossible feats uh, you know, Red Sonia can uh, use her strength. She can wrestle bears. She runs faster than wolves. Um, Conan fights prehistoric beasts with his bare hands. Um, but the Grey Mouser, you know, is always tested. Like he, he's always proving that he is the greatest swordsman because the numbers two, three, four, and five swordsmen have appeared to face him. Yeah, some of the fun sometimes is the dramatic irony of knowing that the character is capable of doing something, knowing that your PC is capable of doing something and having an NPC show up and be like, oh, yeah, well, prove it. I'm I'm going to take you on. And you get to be like, OK, I guess I'm just going to I guess I'm going to murder you. Right. It's it's never as easy as it seems, but it's <laughs> always worth the squeeze. <laughs> So you want to reward big ideas and risk-taking, right? PCs should be doing things like leaping from great heights and running towards danger, not cowering because they're afraid of, like, dying in one hit or, you know, losing 10 hit points. They should be kicking in these doors. Yeah, and, and relying on that preternatural capability, right? Like, Conan storms through the room and assassinates the sorceress before she can react he does not carefully plan a trap for her or cower behind and grab an army to help surround and siege her right like he is in the door murdering her guards and murdering her in the process right the calculation isn't will i survive being hit by the fireball it's what will i do once i survive being hit by the fireball right, exactly how wounded will I be? I guess we'll find out. Exactly. <laughs> now, of course, this doesn't always mean the heroes succeed, right? They're good at what they do, but the bad guy might get away. Their friend might die in their arms. Although when these things happen, like the, the characters don't usually end up falling on their faces, right? They don't crit fail, um, except maybe occasionally as a source of humor when, you, when you're not like building to a climax in the story. 
Yeah, a lot of times it's a it's a character flaw that leads to that setback, right? So, um, like Conan is a, a, a an incredibly capable individual, but doesn't always choose the best associates, right? So <laughs> he might sign up for a job that was. Uh, sold to him a little wrong, right? And and maybe his companion is the one who triggers the trap that gets them both, you know, stuck in the uh, in the wizard's prison or prison thirty miles below the earth <laughs> or whatever. Uh, right. So take a look at your game system. Um, does it encourage or allow the heroes to succeed more than it makes them fail? You know, does it reward you for taking risks or does it overly punish you for taking risks? And if it if it does punish players for doing like cool, interesting, or dangerous things, then you either want to tone that down mechanically or look for a new system. And then you also want to make sure you're abiding by the rule of cool. This isn't necessarily about verisimilitude or simulation here. This is about doing the narratively most interesting thing you can that fits the theme of the adventure. So it's not about swindling them for an impossible amount of gold to ride off into the sunset. It's about doing the really cool thing and stealing all the gold so that you can waste it before your next adventure. Because you're not allowed to have it when the next adventure starts. Exactly. <laughs> like, fate will, will, will collude in order to ensure you get out of this with a rich prize, and it will also collude to ensure you start your next adventure without that. Now, if this sounds like it might get a little dull, right? The characters are able to accomplish too much or it's not gritty enough. Remember that in sword and sorcery games, consequences should probably be grim, right? Failure should have meaningful results. Now, because the characters are so central to the story, death for a PC should probably be rare because otherwise you that's the only continuity you have from adventure to adventure. But they can always lose something very valuable. You know, their their family, that's a common backstory. Uh, their friends, you know, a valuable NPC that they've come to care about. But it could be like power, you know, you're no longer recognized. You have a bad reputation. Um, you know, you, you uh, lose uh, the kingdom that you had won in the, in the last adventure. Or, or an opportunity, right? You no longer have access to get the weapon or the armor or the, the lost love that you wanted to find. They're often separated from their belongings, right? So Fafford and the Grey Mouse are named their weapons. They've got Grey Wand and Heartseeker and Cast Claw. But these are just what they call the weapons that they currently have on them in the moment, right? They're not particular special weapons that they're going to like risk their lives to go get. It's like, like, which Dirk do I have right now? Okay, great. You're Heartseeker. Also, a lot of times the scars are emotional. Uh, you know, heroes live in a grim world. They've seen terrible things. Their worldview is shaped by the loss that they experience throughout their adventures. So, uh, it might be, it might be something that makes them tough or cruel or um, gives them their motivation or creates a weakness that can be exploited by their their rivals, their opponents, right? Their antagonists. Yeah, I actually love the way that like Blades in the Dark handles handles this, uh, where you know some something very bad can happen to your character, and then you take a trauma, and now that becomes like a, a part of your personality that you get to to decide how you are going to play out um, in future games. It gets it is both um, a a penalty like a loss, but uh, but also it's like a badge. You know, hey, this is I got this scar, this emotional scar from that adventure. Do you remember that adventure? That was really cool. Right, and then over time, like. That becomes the, as those mount, that becomes the reason your character walks away from the story. It doesn't necessarily mean your character is dead in the story. Right. 
Of course, scars can be physical too. We tend to think of these characters as the peak of physical perfection, but they definitely don't have to be, right? Grey Mouser's a very small person, even though he's like agile. Uh, but Elric is born frail and needs life-sustaining magic, even really just to stay alive. Uh, eventually, Fafford loses a limb, and he needs to relearn how to fight. Uh, and I, I think he actually ends up maybe better than he was before, because that's just how these things sort of work. That's that's the trope. <laughs> But above the table, talk about the consequences that can happen in this particular game. Talk about your tone and like how that might affect gameplay, right? Like if losing a limb has mechanical effects in the system that you're playing, talk about whether that's a possibility, um, how often or if that is going to happen, and then what the potential things that you can do to offset that uh, might be, whether that's like, nothing and you live with it or it's hand all the way to hand-waved and like, you know, you figure out how to how your character um, you know is even better than they were before. Another common theme of these adventures is that magic is rare and mysterious. Like D and D magic users are way stronger and way more common than the ones you typically find in sword and sorcery uh, stories. Uh, yeah, D and D characters are the the evil sorcerer that the heroes are supposed to go kill. Yeah, like. Wizards create towers in D&D, um, but the PCs are not supposed to be the ones wielding that magic to break into them, right? <laughs> like, in a, in a sword and sorcery adventure, you are the barbarian, the fighter, the rogue, um, you know, maybe the the bard <laughs> trying to break in, not the ninth level wizard uh, casting your fifth level spells to tear down the tower. Right, you assail towers uh, to stop the uh, terrible magic user who is able to once per day change reality on a whim. Right. <laughs> uh, so you're there using your martial power, uh, your you know ability, your raw determination, strategy, and your willingness to sacrifice something, either of yourself or, or often of your fortune. Um, or your friends in order to accomplish whatever it is you're trying to do. So this means that consumables are probably going to be the most common type of magic item that these characters will come across. Um, it doesn't mean magic doesn't exist. It just means it's poorly understood. It's mostly low level. But yeah, you can definitely find, you know, um, a druid who puts together poultices, healing poultices that you can use for later. Like That's only wise, right? The magic that does exist, though, does tend to be more powerful. And that makes it either the domain of NPCs or your enemies or involves some sort of like time consuming ritual magic. You know, like maybe you're able to um, protect an area from, you know, marauding undead, but that is going to be a quest in and of itself, not simply like as a single action casting a hallow spell. Yeah. It, it also, like, magic is often a corrupting influence. Right. Like either uh, it drives you to madness or it drives you to evil, like the act of using magic makes you evil um, or like the power that comes with it. Um, like, you know, human nature cannot resist uh, abusing that power and you are evil, therefore, because, you know, this power ends up shaping you. Yeah, um, it destroys the environment, like in Dark Sun. Um, it requires like sacrifices of like intelligent humanoids, which you know by definition makes you evil. There's also like I remember some Conan stories where it doesn't seem like the magic is actually magic. Like it seems like the magic is like 
a drug or something. Like, I'm pretty sure there's one where, like, he just wanders into an opium den. And, like, it's like <laughs> it's like a city, like, that's just hopelessly addicted to opium and, like, the, like, associated hallucinations. Um, and, like, yeah, it's like a magical spell, right? It's as understood to him as a magical spell. Mm-hmm. But otherwise, like... It sure seems like they're implying the smoke that keeps like hovering throughout the passages is probably the cause. Oh, this? Uh, yeah, I'm an illusionist. <laughs> right. <laughs> no one fully understands magic or how or why it works in these types of games, right? It's either a force of nature or some sort of aberration that is completely unnatural. You can tap into it, but you probably can't fully control it. So, you know, there are no magic schools, there's no Hogwarts, um, there are no squads of war wizards that, you know, fight in orderly combat and cast spells and know exactly how they're going to work and, like, when they're going to go off. Yeah, there's no, like, Eberron uh, magical industry. There's no, you know, flying ships and uh, and magic carpets, right? Right. And PCs who do have some magical ability are probably dabblers or hedge wizards, um, mostly low level. But, you know, if... Uh, if you can use it, then why wouldn't you, right? PCs are utilitarian. Yeah, you, you use your illusionary cantrips in order to get that martial advantage. They don't provide you the win. They give you the slight edge you need to triumph. And part of this is because power of almost any kind will come at a price. Those in power are likely corrupted in some way. I mean, that's either how they got the power in the first place, you know, if you're a sorcerer king and you're willing to do whatever it takes to use magic, or it happens once you have power. The power corrupts you. Yeah, I I love this about true name magic, uh, which isn't necessarily, like, unique to sword and sorcery, but, like, there's always that concept of, like, to be a truly powerful wizard from birth, or basically from the moment that you realized you had magical power, you had to protect your true name, which means you killed your family and everyone you know. And then you started amassing power, right? Like you have to be truly sociopathic to even pursue powerful magic and not have that vulnerability lingering. And this means that the truly powerful usually are going to be NPCs or, you know, a PC with the dark side, right? Because the heroes in these stories are human or, you know, humanoid, what have you. They might be superhumanly powerful, but ultimately they are mortal. So if you have capabilities like invulnerability to weapons or immortality or, you know, high level magic, or even if you like aren't magical at all, but you can control nations because, you know, you uh, have ascended to the throne, all of these things eventually corrupt the body or the soul or the mind in some way. So that's why usually you have like plucky adventurers uh, or, you know, kind of dark and morose adventurers who are gathering together for a full assault against impossible odds. Sometimes this price is paid willingly. Uh, Other times it's a gamble. The consequences are unknown, Um, usually unknown to the PC, sometimes also unknown to the player. Yeah, I mean, if you do want to be a high level magic user in one of these games, I'd probably go with Warlock and like really play up the price from the patron. Because another thing, uh, another theme that you usually get from Sword and Sorcery is black and gray morality. Uh, This is in contrast to the black and white morality that you'll get in like pulp. Um, Bad guys are always bad and good guys are also sometimes bad. Yeah. Conan is a bit problematic. (laughs) For a lot of different reasons. (laughs) Yeah. The world is a really harsh place, right? And sometimes questionable acts are going to be necessary for the greater good. Or questionable acts are necessary because the heroes are human and sometimes they're just selfish bastards. 
Yeah, or because their authors are uh, lousy people who have backwards views of the world and other people in it. Elric has a sword that has to be fed human souls. He doesn't get rid of the sword. No, he does not. <laughs> uh, you know, Conan does not s- stop patronizing bar wenches and, uh, and maidens in distress who throw themselves at him, despite the um, obvious connotations there. Of course, you don't need to include those types of things in your game, right? But you can uh, make sure that people understand that they don't have to be shining beacons of, you know, lawful good morality. However, I don't think this applies to the protagonists, right? Like, the protagonists are always looking out for each other. Like, when you commit to a companion or you commit to a team, um, you're going to act selflessly. You're going to work together. You're not going to sell one person out um, unless this happens to be one of those stories where you have the NPC who does that to you and then they become the antagonist. Right. It doesn't necessarily mean that all the characters will always be acting selflessly or they'll be fine with like glorious martyrdom. Right. But because these stories often have smaller stakes, right, you're not always saving the world or maybe not even often saving the world. You don't have that high level motivation like driving these characters to heroics right the thing you can usually have like you know uh, even an evil character in a party who's like well you know i live here and i keep all my stuff on the planet so i guess i'll help you stop the world eater Mm -hmm. but since you're not up against that then you need to find other reasons that your like evil or gray character will work with these other people and and find a reason that your character is interested in accomplishing this task without stabbing people in the back Often it's just the trope of, well, at the end of this, we're going to shake hands and go our separate way. So that's our motivation. Right. But for now, we did hit, we did shake hands and that means something. Right. Don't worry about killing nameless goons. Uh, don't worry about the morality of that. Um, usually you don't have to worry about the collateral damage that might be caused by a battle um, unless it's going to be a plot point. And if it is a plot point, that's probably going to be resolved pretty quickly. Um, that is not going to be a lingering plot point. That's not going to be, you know, some grand change in your reputation in the world. Uh, that's going to be a very localized consequence. Right. Unless you decide that you want it to be like a single character defining regret that your uh, character ends up with, right? The Early on, the, you made a mistake and were unable to save a village and everyone was killed. And now like that lives lives with you and that's one of the reasons that propels you to action in the future yeah you only have to be trapped in one sorcerer's dungeon before you don't trust magic at all and uh have a predisposition <laughs> towards murdering mages when you see them it's not my fault some call it a character defining flaw but i call it a character defining success <laughs> they gave me two character points for this i don't understand <laughs> So moral quandaries will come in different forms, right? Your party is not likely to mull over whether they are going to kill the BBEG. Of course, they are going to kill the BBEG. But the question is, what or who are they going to be willing to sacrifice in order to accomplish that task? I think this is probably more interesting if the heroes have some kind of compunctions, right? It's, it's not black and, and black, right? It's not, it doesn't have to be completely grimdark because otherwise it just sort of easily devolves into murder hoboing and like they don't care about the consequences of any of their actions. Mm-hmm. So another element of these types of stories is that they often have a dubious timeline. Uh, not every adventure you play will need to happen sequentially. Um, 
this is probably one of the tougher things to model in an RPG because you kind of have a sequential power curve that the longer you play, uh, players tend to expect to grow in power, gain more abilities, whatever. Uh, if you're skipping around in the timeline, that means you're also skipping around in your character sheet. Um, or at least that tends to be the expectation with the player characters. Uh, sorry. That tends to be the expectation with the players themselves. But this can be great for pickup games or maybe for a fill-in session when the regular GM can't make it. You know, you just sort of pull out the old characters and they haven't leveled up much, but it doesn't really matter because, you know, it's been three or six months since we played them and we're just revisiting the characters themselves, not necessarily like, oh, that extra plus one from last session. I, I also almost like a DCC type, um, you know, where, where you've just got your character funnel. Um if, if you aren't sacrificing them as uh, wantonly as you would in like Dungeon Crawl Classics, but perhaps you've got a few characters to start with and like you just kind of randomly assemble them for the next adventure, right? Like, hey, what's our team this time? Well, I rolled a six, so I've got this character and I rolled a four, so I'm grabbing this character. Uh, and this is who shows up for this adventure this time. Yeah. And in general, this will be easier to model when leveling isn't one of the primary rewards of the game that you happen to be playing. Right. And... I think another theme is gender parity, even though this might seem a bit counterintuitive. Most of the original sword and sorcery stories are products of their times, right? There are damsels in distress all over the place, uh, but they do often also have heroic women who are just as capable as the men. Uh, Red Sonia is sort of like a, a newer iteration of this, but she is easily a match for Conan. She has beaten him before. Yeah, I think the, the issue there is that... Uh at least in the products of their time, right, is that the um, even the capable women always fall for the protagonist. Um, and they don't have a whole lot of agency in that. Like, the romantic interest always falls towards Conan, right? So what you can do here is you can push back against people who might talk about, like, verisimilitude or sticking to the genre tropes because you do have these touchstones where... Um, the women are capable and, you know, they're out on their own or they're having their own adventures, right? Yeah. Like, these stories usually take place in a world that never actually existed, right? They're not historical stories. I'm the sorry, Hybor what? <laughs> uh, the Hyborian Age was right between uh, the Jurassic and Triassic periods. That's why Conan is always fighting a Stegosaurus. Although, look, a Stegosaurus and a Tyrannosaurus Rex together, I cannot condone that. That's impossible. Now, iron smelting and, you know, Bronze Age societies and, and uh, you know, a Paleolithic society existing next to each other and no one conquering each other. I'm okay with that. I can deal with it. Hey, look, I'm fine with Damascus steel blades and bronze shields, okay? Because... <laughs> If, if there's one thing that I know about games, it's that people prefer offense over defense. <laughs> <laughs> right. We just we just poured all our resources into this and I didn't I didn't buy up uh, my, my armor capabilities. Right. Exactly. It's well, the thing is you pay two to one on armor. So it's like it's just cheaper to, to build better weapons. All right. So if you are going to use sword and sorcery in your game, uh, a couple things to keep in mind. First off is, you know, just don't sweat the details, right? Like, how does a an actual human being lift a giant boulder over their heads? <laughs> this is, it's like the, the scene from Bad Santa where it's like, draw me a diagram of how I lift him. I'm three feet tall. <laughs> like, like, don't do that. <laughs> just, yeah, sure. You wrap your arms around it and lift it. Who cares? 
Yeah, this is one of the times where you, you want to like sort of throw out the rules that usually govern most games and uh, feats of strength. <laughs> because true. how else am I supposed to use my bare hands and uh, wrestle a bear or smash down a stone wall? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> or how are these hunter-gatherers smelting iron for steel? I don't get it. Exactly. So what's important here is that the PCs are capable of amazing feats. Uh, if they come up with a good idea or a cool idea and there's a way to model it, just do it. Don't let reality get in the way of a dice roll. Also, keep things moving. Don't let the party sit in one place for too long, whether that is physically or mentally, right? Things should always be happening. These are supposed to be action-packed adventures, uh, and the characters are not always in control of what happens, right? A pack of dire hyenas is going to attack in the night, or villagers are going to show up with a request, and man, it is hard to refuse. This is actually one of those cases where random tables can be helpful, um, because these aren't meant to have common through lines. So... If you're going to constantly, you know, every session or two be shifting the setting, uh, not the overarching setting, right? But like your your actual like localized setting where this adventure takes place every couple of weeks, like you've got to write a lot to make these worlds come to life. And and like that's one of the things that makes these stories so good, right? On the written page is like how immersive they are in just the few hundred words that you get about where Conan is actually adventuring this week. Yeah, like in these instances, the PCs don't necessarily have grand ambitions or motivations. So make the story come to them, right? They've got reputations. They are essentially superhuman. Make it work for them and sometimes make it work against them. Yeah, when when you walk in the room and you're addressed as, you know, the conqueror, well, that tells you something about who you are and about how they see you. And that's, that's more evocative than giving a three-page backstory that you wrote up uh, last weekend. Uh, before this session that also means it's your responsibility to deal with the horde of undead that is currently approaching unfortunate <laughs> <laughs> and players you should be up for anything right even if you've got a long long-term goal to like save your family who's been turned to stone or defeat a wizard or whatever there are tasks in the here and now that are going to be important and that are going to be interesting yeah, this is one where you kind of have to accept the railroad, right? Like when the when the scenario for the week is do the thing, you need to do the thing and trust that that is going to lead to whatever motivation you have in, in the long term, right? Like along the way, you'll discover a clue about your uh, stone family that otherwise, like you wouldn't have any insight into that happening except for the fact that, well, you're in a pulp adventure, right? Like this is a sword and sorcery game. That's how things happen. Yeah, like that'll be the B plot. Like, oh, I discovered something or someone knew something. And the A plot is not actually the thing that you're confronted with now. The A plot is how do we react to it and how do our relationships between each other change because of it? I'd also say you can play a lone wolf character. Um, it's really appropriate for the genre, but just make sure you're not being a lone wolf player when you do it. You know, find a reason for the PC to join that party and give them a reason to care about the welfare of their party members. Yeah, as a player, you got to be a team player. Uh, as a character, you can complain about it all you want as long as you go along for the ride. Yeah, I mean, Belkar Bitterleaf is great here, right? Like, still very effective. Does he stab his party members when yes. there are kobolds well when well, there are no. kobolds that currently could be stabbed he'll stab them after the kobolds are dead okay yeah sure <laughs> <laughs> only then do you need to worry about it you just need to keep something more dangerous in front of belkar or else he'll he'll turn his attention to you 
That's exactly right. Unfortunately, dire hyenas in a horde of undead are attacking the village. Exactly. Um, fail forward here. Um, a botched roll or poor planning should lead to greater danger or maybe every once in a while even a lucky win. But make sure you're staying action-oriented and avoiding dead ends for the story. Yeah, there's always going to be another way to defeat the monster, to solve the riddle, to escape the predicament. Um, though that might come at a cost. And that's okay. And a good tactic here is to end on a cliffhanger. Um, if you don't know what that cost is going to be, or you don't know how they're going to succeed, or players, you have absolutely no idea, and you know you want to sort of put your heads together during the next week, Great. End on the cliffhanger and we'll find out next week. Right. And also keep the mystery. Not everything in the world needs to have an explanation or needs to get a big reveal. Right. Why does magic work the way that it does? Mm, doesn't matter. And it may be that no one ever actually finds out. Yeah. And also, you don't need to know as the GM either. Right. The magic works the way it does, which is in whatever way it needs to for the plot you're currently involved in. Um, there doesn't have to be a ton of internal consistency. Right. I mean, it could all have different reasons, right? Um, there's ancient evil and probably long forgotten civilizations in the world. That's a very common trope in, in the genre. So there are secrets to be discovered. There are, you know, potentially cursed magic items that you can stumble upon or find or, you know, depending on the, the technology level, like an actual steel sword. Mm -hmm. But... That full picture is never going to be explored, and it also means that you you don't need to write it ahead of time. Don't worry about it. Yeah, this this helps that a lot of times these settings are like transitional, um, right? There was a prior age in where there was lots of knowledge, uh, or or perhaps there we are moving towards an age where these things are also coming about, but we don't have it yet. Right. So the the period right after the fall of Rome is like is a great kind of uh, a great way to kind of think about how these things get set where like lots of stuff got lost um, and no one has the time to explore it and fully understand it because like we got survival is top of mind. You know, there are real threats out there. The Huns are somewhere about to eat us everywhere. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> I'm not so even let's sure get down to business. I'm not positive the hunts are contemporary. I, I picked a random. <laughs> right. You're worried about contemporary. Okay. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Some of these societies don't have agriculture. <laughs> so some caveats when you're running these games. Uh, first one I think is morality, right? A black and gray tail can be very dark. So just make sure that your group is on board with that tone. And sometimes like inject a bit of levity, lighten it up a little bit. Yeah, uh, there are sometimes stories with pratfalls and low stakes, right? Like that—that that does happen from time to time. Um, that's okay. You can you can take one off. You can you know kind of roll out your shoulders and and take a little weight off. Right, and sometimes like the the reason for that you're having an adventure right now is like a wizard wanted to screw with you, so yeah. that's what's happening. Or like. Conan goes to the market. <laughs> <laughs> he doesn't understand some of the things that he sees. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, in real life, like reality is much worse than any story that anybody can actually write. Uh, but don't put terrible things into the game just for verisimilitude. Sword and sorcery tropes often involve things like chattel slavery and rape and genocide. You don't have to have those in, the, in your game if you don't want them. 
Instead, you can delve into the personal consequences of the morally gray choices that these characters are going to make. I mean, it's like really easy to be like, hey, we're basically playing one step above murder hobos. And, you know, I um, don't really care about uh, anybody else. And I'm just in it for the money. And like, I'm a mercenary. And so like, who cares if we kill innocent people? It's more interesting and ultimately fun, though, if it does take some sort of toll or you have to think about it or there are consequences for killing innocents. Also, a lot of times these stories have tragic backstories. That's a big part of the motivation for the characters. But um, consider the tropes that you're including in these uh, as, as you go about writing your character, um, especially like the, the tendency to fridge families or especially fridge women um like that is sometimes the only reason that men can get up in adventure in the morning and that's not exactly uh, a great look for um female characters yeah consider whether you're putting that in your story just because you've seen it so often in other stories like think of the way this is usually characterized men in their backstories lose loved ones or they lose possessions things that belong to them women lose bodily autonomy or agency. Like how often is the backstory to a female character? A uh, sex slave mm-hmm. is not necessary uh, to the character or to have it to an interesting character or, or to a compelling story to include these things. Like um, you look at Red Sonia. Um, her backstory is <laughs> all of the above. Her family is killed and she gets raped. Um, that was later retconned when you finally got um, women writers writing the character and they were like well that's completely unnecessary and i don't know why we need to have that like this is dark and gritty but it can be dark and gritty without bringing in any of that mm-hmm. what's her retcon backstory uh family killed uh but uh, no rape uh and she doesn't need to uh remain a chaste virgin in order to be powerful that helps yeah yeah also more interesting for character mm-hmm there's another another caveat here around character growth. Uh, in sword and sorcery, characters often stay pretty much the same. Um, but like, even Conan eventually becomes the king, right? Uh, he doesn't stay a king very long because that doesn't <laughs> produce a lot of like exciting adventures, and we don't really find out why he's not a king anymore. He's just sometimes referred to as a king, um, and still doing the same stuff. So while you don't need to completely upend the way that your character lives, you can stay true to the character while this, while their circumstances or maybe even some of their views change, right? But like their sort of internal um, directive can be the same no matter what situation you put them in. Yeah, and like in those stories, right? Like what happens is the, you know, ascended king is separated from his resources, right? Like you may be queen, but if you are not in your lands um, and you do not have any subjects to rule, well, then you're just another adventurer, aren't you? Right. Or, you know, she uses uh, all of the um, like uh, knowledge that she gained while adventuring to make a wise decision while sitting on the throne. Mm hmm. All right, so let's talk about some systems where you might play sword and sorcery. Shane, you already mentioned, but DCC, I think, uh, Dungeon Call Classics is uh, an obvious choice. Uh, It's gritty. The character funnel can work really well. You end up uh, with a character who's basically through happenstance survived long enough, and that's a great backstory. Mm -hmm. Uh, Pelgrim Press also has the Swords of the Serpentine setting, which is like a fantasy gumshoe setting. Um, Drives a little more investigation, but, you know, it it fits the trappings really well. 
Yeah, and we talked before about how Gumshoe is a pretty good system for not failing. Um, it gives a nice uh, low bar for heroics. Right. There are lots of games also built specifically for this kind of stuff. Obviously, like Riddle of Steel, D20 Conan uh, from Mongoose. Um, they vary in quality, uh, but all of them are at least trying to capture the feel of the genre. Yeah, and then if you look at like Dungeons and Dragons before third edition, mm-hmm. uh, like second edition especially really crystallizes this. Like low level D and D from the earlier era really highlights the. Um, the primacy of physical power, right, for a time, um, and and if you're playing a wizard, there's a very high likelihood you're playing many wizards over the course of this campaign. <laughs> you start over at level one, and your life expectancy is short. Right, and you know the um, your capabilities are on par with the genre. Right, like, I cast grease on their eyes <laughs> once. <laughs> today yeah (laughs) and then yeah you pull out a freaking crossbow you also mentioned uh you know blades in the dark or or forged in the dark games i think the structure of forged in the dark is really good for these kinds of like episodic narratives though i can't think of any specifically that um really model the like power level or or frankly even really the activity of these kinds of adventures but Mm -hmm. it's an interesting approach to um, how you amass power over time, uh, how you deal with like kind of the, the consequences over time, right? Like the, the scars and trauma system is, uh, is interesting, I think, for kind of shaping characters. And then it's also relatively narrow power banding, you know, like a high level Forge in the Dark character isn't going to be materially different. Yeah. And something like uh, a mechanic like the Devil's Bargain uh, mm-hmm. makes a lot of sense in this genre. Yeah. Yeah. That ensures you succeed and you just pay a cost for it. So I think if you have played, you know, a lot of traditional fantasy-based RPGs, you've, you know, you've sort of looked at Swords and Sorcery out of the corner of your eye. You've played pulp games, some steampunk games. Um, it's a really nice change of pace to really sort of like bring down the power level a little bit to lower the uh, the stakes in terms of the entire world, but kind of raise the stakes in terms of character. Uh, they're aren't easy answers um and and there aren't easy fights yeah just keep your party at level one and play fifth edition forever (laughs) okay that sounds miserable (laughs) (laughs) everyone's a ranger yeah good luck do you hear that isha it is definitely not the sound of uh bellows and uh hammer and anvil because that does not exist here well, let's move on to the character creation forge and see what all that banging is. Before we do it, let's talk about how our listeners can get in contact with us. We do love hearing from you. You can tweet at Shane at Mundangerous. That's M-U-N Dangerous. And you can tweet at Dishan at Evil Sans Carne. That's Malice minus Meat. And you can tweet at the show at TPT Cast. You can also email us at TotalPartyThrill at gmail.com. And you can find us on the web at www.TotalPartyThrill.com. We're also on Facebook and Instagram at TotalPartyThrill. And join the conversation on Discord. There's a link in the show notes. So this week, Total Party Thrill is brought to you by Kobold Press and Tome of Beasts 2, which is now available on the Kobold Press store. The publisher of the original smash hit Tome of Beasts, Kobold Press, has wrangled a new horde of wildly original, often lethal, and highly entertaining 5th edition compatible monsters to challenge new players and veterans alike. 
Zotoma Beast 2 brings 400 new monsters to 5th edition, from Angelic Enforcers, Sasquatch, and Shriek Bats, to Psychic Vampires, Zombie Dragons, and much more. In addition to the Tome of Beasts hardcover volume and PDFs, you can get Monster Pawns, virtual tabletop versions, and Monster Lairs with beautiful maps at your favorite VTT platform of choice. So find out more at GoBallPress.com and tell them DSPN sent you. All right, so this week in the Character Creation Forge, we're building Red Sonia. Ishan, who is Red Sonia? She is the Hyrcanian, sometimes ally of Conan. Uh, originally created by Marvel Comics in 1973, based on uh, some characters from early Howard stories. Yeah, so about 50 years after Conan. <laughs> <laughs> uh, she's also the originator of the chainmail bikini. Um, she and Conan's lack of dress, uh, the reason that barbarians in D&D don't have to wear armor. Mm-hmm. It's interesting that she got chainmail and Conan just got a loincloth. Uh, in the 1985 movie with Bridget Nielsen, she's basically wearing like furs and stuff. I, I don't recall the, the actual chainmail bikini, but I think that's because uh, special effects weren't up to par to the point where you could actually create a wearable chainmail bikini yeah. for a real person. <laughs> I think they're still not, honestly. Yeah. All right. So she can wrestle great beasts. Uh, she's very good at killing unarmed, even though she prefers uh, longsword and shield. Uh, she can dodge fireballs, take multiple arrow hits, and keep going. And some versions are gifted by power from the goddess Skathek. Of course they are. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so what's the build? She is Zealot Barbarian 14, Scout Rogue 4, Paladin 2. Uh, she and Conan are, of course, the archetypal barbarians that D&D based the class on. So obviously she's a barbarian. And we're going to go variant human to take the tavern brawler feat because very often she's separated from her gear and she just murders everybody with like kicks and and you know elbow smashes and like just snaps necks and crushes skulls Mm -hmm. perfect from five levels of barbarian we'll start off we get unarmored defense so that the chainmail bikini works or you know you can also just wear normal clothes if you'd like Uh uh-huh uh, she gets rage and a damage boost, uh, shields, because that's her uh, preferred armament, fast movement, trap sense, uh, so that uh, she's able to uh, dodge out of the way of those fireballs and extra attack. And she's gifted by power by a goddess, which she channels into her attacks. Once uh, her, on the first hit per round, she deals an additional 1d6 plus half barbarian level extra radiant or necrotic. Uh... She'll also take two levels of Paladin next, uh, which is yet more power granted by her goddess. Uh, She'll get a fighting style, which is going to be great weapon or dueling, depending on what weapon you prefer. Uh, Armor works too, because you're always wearing armor, because I don't think she ever takes off the chainmail bikini. Well, I mean, yeah, because of those sensors. (laughs) Um, She just sleeps in it. it It makes sense, of course. All my characters sleep in their armor. That's not that weird. Um... (laughs) Uh, but yes, uh, this will, of course, we're here for Divine Smite um, to spend those uh, spell slots for extra damage, uh, you know, strikes infused by uh, Scrathic. Uh, and then Reflay for the spells as martial abilities. And this is very easy, easy with low-level um, Paladin spells. Uh, things like Shield of Faith just means she's, you know, better at dodging or, you know, she takes the hit and is just bleeding but is, you know, pushing through it. Uh, Cure Wounds is just her healing, you know, unnaturally fast. 
then we'll take four levels of rogue. So we'll get four expertise from scout. That's uh, nature, survival, intimidation, and athletics. Uh, you'll also be able to disengage as a reaction whenever an enemy ends their movement adjacent to you. Yeah, she regularly takes on forces where she's outnumbered single-handedly, uh, so it's, she's very hard to pin down. Um, if she ends up with a light weapon, you know, is disarmed and is fighting with a, a dagger, which often happens, she can sneak attack, and then cunning action is what uh, lets her keep up uh, with those panthers running uh, besides them. And then we go barb 14. She'll get a re-roll uh, once per rage on a saving throw because she often fights supernatural evil. So she's uh, particularly resistant to those kinds of magics and she's very good at killing random demons. She also has advantage on initiative and can rage even when she is surprised. She'll get two extra dice on critical hits from Brutal Critical. And once per day, she can inspire allies with a battle cry. As a bonus action, all of her allies within 60 feet will get advantage on attacks and saving throws for a round. With Relentless Rage, uh, she can make a con saving throw, an increasing con saving throw to stay conscious each time she would drop to zero. And then we're here for the capstone, Rage Beyond Death. She doesn't fall unconscious even at zero hit points. She doesn't die from failed death saving throws at least until her rage ends. But if she uh, is above zero hit points, when that happens, then she still stays alive. All right. Before we wrap up, we want to take a moment and thank our Patreon supporters. Your support is what makes it possible for us to keep doing this show every single week. So if you'd like to learn more, you can check out all of our rewards at patreon.com slash totalpartythrill. And what do we have planned for next week's episode? We'll be talking about using history. And in the character creation forge, we're building, of course, the historian. Well, that's it for episode 279 of Total Party Thrill. I hope we lived up to our name, but either way, I'm Shane. And I'm Ishan. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.